are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. Much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the word of the Lord. So whenever uh, a TV series captures a decent following and the producers begin to realize there's actually some money to be made here and we've got a storyline with a bit of staying power, they start using this particular technique in order to keep you watching. They, they begin developing the backstory behind every character. They start writing in those episodes where there's suddenly a story about the childhood of one of the peripheral cast members and they're giving you all of the context that brings who that person is in the episodes you've been watching into more formation. And so at the same time, what they're doing is they're drawing you in. They're gathering your interest so that you're not just cheering the hero on anymore. You actually have a deep emotional vested interest even in those on the periphery of the cast. And so all of a sudden, every scene and every character has emotional attachment to you and you to them. So just think about a successful show. From what I can tell, it seems like the most successful network television show right now is This Is Us, which is a show where people are looking in all sorts of different directions at any given time. So, there was, if you watched this show, there was a time in the show where you really only cared about how the dad died. But now they are wringing out the storyline of every last character they're introducing because they're trying to keep you watching as long as they possibly can. And the reason I bring all of that up is because that's actually a bit of what it's like to be a pastor. You know, like you walk into a room like this one and you probably interact with it like you do any other environment. You immediately begin to make snap judgments based on who seems safe and who seems unsafe, who seems interesting and who seems uninteresting. But as one of the leaders here, I have the privilege of walking into this particular room and knowing the backstory behind so many faces. I know the history of the winding, hopeful, painful spiritual journey that has brought so many people to be sitting in that seat during the intro to this sermon, and at least for me, that changes things. So we're about a month into this When the Advocate Comes teaching series, which is based entirely on Jesus' conversation with his disciples on the last night of his life, a conversation that's centered on the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinitarian God. And here's a theme that hopefully you've picked up by now if you've been around. You cannot tell the story of the early church without the power of the Holy Spirit. God's indwelling presence is on every 
page, filling ordinary people with extraordinary life. And across the spectrum of the modern church, people deal with the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit in ordinary people in all sorts of different ways. There are certain camps that do theological gymnastics to explain why God must have given us something less than he gave them. And there's other camps that basically turn it all into pep talks and just try to will you into wanting it more because God must be holding out until you want it bad enough. And both of those are tragic misconceptions of the biblical story, but both come from this fact. It's people trying to deal with the fact that you cannot tell the story of the church without the power of the Holy Spirit. But equally, you cannot tell the story of the church without the suffering of this world. Because the book of Acts contains the miraculous power of God, yes, but it's also a book chock full of suffering and confusion and pain. And we see that systemically through things like poverty and power abuse, and we also see it personally like lost loved ones, even children, like fractured relationships that do not get repaired quickly, if at all, even among the church leaders, deep disillusionment and pain. And if you tell the story of the Holy Spirit outside of this world of suffering, you rip it from reality and turn it into a fairy tale. And that won't do because I know too many stories behind too many faces. And those stories, your stories are too real and too resilient to be soothed by a fairy tale that won't actually hold up beneath the weight of the world that we actually live in. And that's why my favorite metaphor to reveal who the Holy Spirit is, is the metaphor of water because it brings these two things together, a gritty, real, unflinching honesty about the suffering of this world and also an unwavering, reckless, joyful hope about the presence of God breaking into that world. And so we're gonna break the script that we've been on for the last month a little bit today and I wanna just go along the Holy Spirit revealed through the metaphor of water in these three movements, the story, the invitation to come, and the invitation to become. So first, the story, and I'm about to tell you the story of the entire Bible, which is something I do from time to time around here. And so I wanna give you these four episodes as we make our way through it, creation, fall, promise, invitation, sort of as anchors as we move along. So first, let's begin with creation, and why don't we just start exactly where the scripture starts. These are the opening words on page one, paragraph one of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now in the ancient Near Eastern world that the story of Genesis emerged from, the waters did not evoke the imagery of like a peaceful, quiet stream where you might find rest in the midst of a day. It evoked image of chaos and fear. All other popular ancient Near Eastern religions involved a pantheon of gods violently battling it out for power control over the earth. And typically, the most feared, the most intimidating of those gods were the gods of the sea, the ones who made their home in the unknown, unexplored depths of the ocean. And even in biblical history, the sea is typically characterized throughout the Old Testament as a place of chaos, disorder, darkness, and fear. So here's what we should be reading. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit was hovering, waiting, and when the Father gives the word, the Spirit touches the chaos, and there's order. Suddenly, land gets separated from sea, light gets divided from dark, but there's more than just organization, there's life. 
In a place where there was once only confusion, dysfunction, darkness, and disorder, now there's delight, wonder, joy, and hope. From the Bible's opening sentence, we can gather this much. The Holy Spirit doesn't just get rid of disorder. That's pretty good. But that's not enough. The Spirit makes the very place of darkness an oasis teeming with full, free life. Episode two, fall. Not long after that, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they left the garden walking out of the world God created going toward the east. Now, did you hear that? Walking toward the east. And that's why the world that you and I actually live in is one that has a lot more in common with chaos than it does Oasis. Episode three, promise. So as the story rolls on, water, which was once symbolized the, the fearful unknown, now begins to symbolize the promise of God made known. And you can find that theme in the Psalms and Proverbs. You, you'll find that in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Joel and Isaiah. Later, the gospel writer John draws on the same imagery. You cannot miss it if you just read through the scriptures. But the promise is actually most clearly revealed in the vision of a prophet named Ezekiel. So at this point, I'm gonna take a risk and I'm gonna read you quite a large chunk of the Bible. But I've trimmed it down a little bit to try to hold your attention, and what I'm going to read you is a vision, so I want you to try to see this in your imagination as I'm reading it, to see what Ezekiel saw. This is Ezekiel chapter 47. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a, a thousand cubits and led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through the water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river, and he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to Araba, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever it flows. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enaglaim, and there will be places for spreading their nets. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Can you see this? Can you see this picture? It's water flowing from a temple and what is only a trickle in the innermost room of the temple as it makes its way down the steps flows toward the east. And it becomes a river deep enough to swim in as it makes its way to the east. East, the direction Adam and Eve walked out of the garden and their rebellion against God. East, the direction representing the human condition. A river flowing east means that this prophecy, this picture is for every last one of us, everyone who's ever lived in chaos. And then within the vision that unfolds, there's a twofold invitation given. First, the invitation to come. And before he even sees where the river is going, the prophet is invited into the waters, wading deeper and deeper until he's swimming. And that invitation was essential to the earliest Christians. If you go back to the church father Tertullian, he described Jesus as the heavenly fish and Christians as little fish. So you know that unbearably cheesy Christian symbol of the fish that your weird uncle has on the bumper of his car? If we just go to the next slide, take a look. This one, 
that symbol, someone really is going for it in that particular car. I know it's a blurry image, but I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to share it with you. Actually, that comes from a rich history of a deep understanding of the Christian life as swimming in the waters of the Spirit of God. So there's this invitation to come, and then secondly, an invitation to become, to become a part of the current that heals the world, because this river flows east, bringing overwhelming life wherever it goes. And alongside the river, fishermen gather, and they're taking in every kind of fish because all living species are making their way through this river. There's fruitful trees lining the banks, and the fruit of these trees is feeding the nations. The leaves of the trees is healing all of its diseases, and then the river empties into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, an actual location within the Middle East that the hearers of the prophecy would be familiar with, and it's called that because nothing can live there. 25% of the content of the Dead Sea is mineral, meaning no living organism we know of can be alive in the Dead Sea. But what happens when the river of life spills into it? It purifies even the most dead place, and a once lifeless place is now teeming with full, free life of every kind. In the place of confusion, darkness, disorder, and fear, there's a promise. I will pour out my spirit and it will be like an unstoppable current of life and peace. And that vision is so much more than a warm sentiment. It was written to an oppressed people group living under foreign slavery. It's not a fairy tale divorced from the suffering of this world. It is crashing right into the suffering of this world. What if God has more for you today? What if God has more for you than just warm sentiments that make you feel okay right now but don't actually have any relevance to the world where your life actually plays out in? What if, right in the place of your unique brand of dysfunction, confusion, fear, and disorder, he's inviting you to come? To come and be washed in the waters where chaos becomes order and to become, to become a part of the current that flows toward the east and heals the whole world, bringing life to the most lifeless places again. Well, that is actually just more or less the story. But how that vision became an invitation is crucial, and to be honest, awesomely rebellious and angsty. So this brings us to Jesus, the invitation. And we'll jump forward to John chapter seven. On the last and greatest day of the festival, now we have to stop right there. Because the key to understanding everything that comes after this, the key to understanding how dangerous Jesus' action and words actually were is in understanding this phrase, on the last and greatest day of the festival. So the festival being referred to here is the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a week-long pilgrimage festival where the entire nation of Israel would travel to the city of Jerusalem. So you had a whole country living in one city for this particular week, and they lived in tabernacles, which is essentially ancient Hebrew for tents. This was the Coachella of ancient Judaism. So they're all descending on the city of Jerusalem, and to this day, If you walk through South Williamsburg during a particular week in the fall, you'll see this. Can we just go to the next image? Tabernacles built on the balconies of apartments in the Hasidic community in South Williamsburg where people are actually living on their balcony for a week still honoring the Feast of Tabernacles. So here's how... Here was sort of the point of this festival, is every day people would live scattered all throughout the streets in these tents, and they would approach the temple at a particular time every day, and the priest would lead a processional, 
where they would carry this massive cistern down to a natural spring that was down toward the east from the temple. They would fill it up with water, and then the priests would march back up, each carrying a cistern, while the whole nation sings the psalms. Louder than any stadium you've ever been in, a whole country singing out the psalms, and they would go back up the steps of the temple and pour water down the steps, one after another, after another until there was a stream of water flowing down the steps of the temple toward the east. A living picture of Ezekiel's vision. This was a way for the whole country to pray together saying, God, give us the living river you promised. But this is the last and greatest day of the festival. And on the last and greatest day, the priest did that processional seven times. So for hours, the priest is filling up cisterns. People are singing the psalms until their throat is sore. Finally, after all of them have poured the water out, the devout and reverend have tears welling behind their eyes. It's a holy moment that only comes once a year. And in that holy moment, Jesus stands up. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus said in a loud voice, he's interrupting the holiest moment of the final procession. Water's running down the temple steps toward the east, forming something like a river. Huge crowds are longing for the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, and Jesus says this, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Are you starting to see how Jesus got himself killed? This was quite an offensive act. He is making a dramatic interruption, timed for the highest moment to extend this twofold invitation, the invitation to come. Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. I am the source of the living river. What you're waiting on in the temple, you can find it right here. And the invitation to become, to become a part of the healing current. All who come to me, the source, then become the source. A river of living water that heals the world, wells up and spills out from within you. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And then if you continue reading the gospel stories from there, everything the river was in the vision, Jesus became in the world. He left paradise to travel to rescue us who had wandered east. He, through his death and resurrection, creates a place of life in the most lifeless place. He calls his disciples fishers of people, and like the trees that line the river, he feeds the hungry and heals the sick. And who was offended by Jesus? Only those that had convinced themselves that the Dead Sea was a place worth living in. Only the Roman centurion and the Greek philosopher and the Jewish priest who each in their own way and by their own method had convinced themselves that just given enough time, they could order their own chaos. They could pin down the circumstances of their own life and piece it together and hold it together. And when you talk yourself into the belief that the Dead Sea is home, living water is a threat. And who was drawn to Jesus? The poor, the sick, the lame, the blind, and the broken. The people drawn to Jesus were those admitting that their lives were owned by disorder, confusion, fear, and chaos. And for them, this was a disruption, but it was the best kind of disruption, like living water purifying the Dead Sea. And for those who came to him, who took Jesus up on this invitation that he so dramatically uttered, the promise came alive in their lives. 
if you just, John 7, what Jesus promises actually comes to bear in Acts chapter 2. When the disciples were in Jerusalem again for a religious festival again. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. The spirit poured out. It sounds like water, right? Right. And who is it poured out on? All people. Everyone who wants it. Everyone humble enough to look at their own internal world and say, I can't order this chaos. Skip ahead to verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, meaning Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out, there it is again, what you now see and hear. The river of living water has been poured out. Come and drink. Oh, but you won't find the river in the temple because the life of God has been made available to be pressed down into ordinary human life so that you can become a well of living water overflowing into the world that you live in. And then everything the river was in the vision, the church became in the world. People sacrificed their comfort to make a home in the dark corners and among the forgotten people. They fed the hungry, they healed the sick, a river flowing east, overwhelming dead places with unstoppable life. That's the story. John Steinbeck says this of the biblical story. A great and lasting story is about everyone or it will not last. The strange and foreign is not interesting, only the deeply personal and familiar. I think this is the best known story in the world because it's everybody's story. I think it is the symbol story of the human soul. See, the story I've been telling you this evening is not a fairy tale, it's my story, and it's yours. Can you find yourself in it? See, there's an invitation to come. And one thing I've noticed as I've preached week after week in this particular teaching series is that when I get to this part, when I get to the really, really good part, the vibe I feel in the room is general boredom. It's not like, easing up in my seat with a twinkle in my eye because even though the, the obvious biblical claim is the life of God filling your very life, we study the principles, but we don't expect the experience. Why not? Because we've been swimming in the Dead Sea for far too long. And so our hope for life, for real life, the kind Ezekiel dreamed of, the kind Jesus promised, the kind rumored of in the church's first 30 years, all of that gets filtered through a lifetime of big theory with little experience. And when we live in the Dead Sea, the story of God's spirit just sounds like a fairy tale. You know, it's not that I don't believe God could do it. It's not even that I don't believe God wants to do it. It's that it takes an experience an actual taste of living water to wake up hope for those who have only ever swum in chaos. And so instead of storming this living river like kids on the first hot day of summer, we try to just to manage our lives on our own. I'll pin down my own life and order my own interior world and every time I think I've finally got it tidied up, it just is a mess again. And we try to manipulate our own anxieties into peace by whatever means we can manage. We are swimming in the waters of death. So life sounds great, but we hold it at a sophisticated distance because we don't have a category for it. And so here we sit right now in a really familiar scene. 
an assembly of singing all the songs and praying all the prayers and rehearsing the ancient vision of a living river. And then Jesus bursts in and says, oh, if anyone here is thirsty, come to me and drink. But rather than come and drink, we consider and discuss and we turn his invitation into experience, into a theory to consider. The story I've been telling you this evening is not a fairy tale. It's my story, and it's yours. Can you find yourself in it? I think most of us are probably watching from the riverbank. And you know, the invitation isn't, Ezekiel, do you see the river there? Do you see what it's doing? Do you see where it's going? Believe in it. The invitation is come and swim. Come and swim in it. Get into the water. On the final night of Jesus' life, he said something similar. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit you will receive from me what he will make known to you. In other words, everything that I'm saying to you now will go from idea to experience when you receive the Holy Spirit. The invitation is participation. And in my experience, the Christian life without the Holy Spirit works just fine until it suddenly doesn't. Because without participation, come and drink is just a worldview. And in my opinion, it is the best, fullest philosophy, but it's still just a worldview, and that'll work fine most of the time. But then what do you do with that ongoing battle with infertility? When the mostly silent grief you carried around of something that was taken from you that was never given to you in the first place? What do you do with the crushing disappointment of another doctor's appointment after another doctor's appointment thinking this could actually be the solution and then there's more silence and nothing? Where does healing come from then? Because a worldview can get you by in ordinary days but a philosophy cannot heal you. Or what about when you finish this leg of the race and they hand you the diploma or the job title or a seat at the table or the, you get to attach this accomplishment to your name? What happens when you get all of that but you lost yourself somewhere along the way? And now you can't go 48 hours without checking your email because you are so restlessly attached to the part of you that you invented. Or, or when you stand in front of your friends and family and make wedding vows and now you're a few years in and he's changed and so have you and you're somehow missing each other and you're miserable. Where does healing come from when those kind of promises get broken? See, a worldview suddenly doesn't cut it anymore when you really, really want to change but still can't. When you despise this thought pattern or this behavioral pattern but despising it and wanting it out still won't pull it out of your life. What do you do when the people who shaped you are also the people that hurt you most profoundly spiritually? When the people that welcomed you into the family of God then become the people that wounded you most deeply. See, turning an invitation into a worldview works until it suddenly doesn't. It always feels like enough until you're confronted with your own helplessness and a philosophy cannot heal you. But the one who spoke order into chaos can. A God perfect in power and love can. 
It was pitch black midnight, and water is falling into the sea through waves and swells, and the disciples are scooping it out as fast as they can, trying to order the chaos, at least on their tiny little boat. And then when they finally are confronted by their own helplessness, the fact that they can't fix the issue, they turn to Jesus and say, Rabbi, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and waves, this is Mark 4, and said, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. The disciples turned to each other and said, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Who is this that orders the chaos with a single word from his lips? In the beginning, the spirit was hovering over the waters and in a place of fear, confusion, darkness, disorder, and chaos, the spirit speaks peace. And Jesus speaks peace to those same waters so that right in the midst of confusion, fear, disorder, dysfunction, chaos, there's peace. And then after his death and resurrection, Jesus appears to those very disciples and every appearance, he has the same four word greeting, peace be with you. A philosophy cannot order your chaos, but there is one who can. The Holy Spirit speaks peace, but that peace can't get to spectators. It's the reward of participation. So beneath your skin right now, is there fear, confusion, disorder? Wade into the water. The invitation is not observation, it's participation. The only one who can't taste this living water is the one who's convinced that they can order the chaos on their own. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. There's this invitation to come, yes, but it doesn't stop there. There's also an invitation to become. The Spirit brings healing, but that's just the start. The Spirit also makes you part of the healing. Everything the river was in the vision, we then become in the world. Ezekiel's vision was that rivers of living water would flow out of the temple into the hurting places in the world. The New Testament says this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You are the innermost room where the trickle then becomes a river. And Jesus said the same thing. Remember, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. And as the scripture said, rivers of living water will pour from within you. By this, he meant the spirit. And over the church's first 30 years, the 120-person church formed in Acts chapter 2 flooded the Dead Sea called the Roman Empire with such living water that the superpower of recorded history fell to its knees before love. How does that happen? Like not just looking back from a safe distance so it feels kind of like fiction, in a real city where there's real power and there's real people, how does that happen? the powerfully healed became powerful healers. That's how it happens. So it would be a massive mistake for us to sit here tonight and glorify the early church. They were nothing special. In fact, in Acts 4, the government goes to investigate this new sect, and this was their report. When they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. The report is they're not particularly intelligent, compelling, attractive, or qualified. They're unschooled and ordinary, but they're filled with the same spirit that filled Jesus. And there's such liberation in their commonness. See, the scandal of the early church wasn't their gifting. It was their commonness. 
common people, powerfully healed, became powerful healers. How could Peter lead a revolution? How could he stand up against rulers threatening his life when just a few weeks prior he had cowered at the face of a teenage girl? How? The powerfully healed became powerful healers. How could Mary Magdalene, a severely mentally ill woman, become a pillar of the early church in a thoroughly patriarchal society? How does that happen? The powerfully healed become powerful healers. How could people living in poverty invent the nonprofit industry because they start the world's first orphanages in response to infants being left to die of exposure? How could people living in poverty rescue those living in poverty? The powerfully healed became powerful healers. How could common, uneloquent prayers from peasant lips actually heal the disabled, sick, and dying? The powerfully healed became powerful healers. How could a, spiritual, a spirituality that is built on a publicly executed peasant become the greatest movement in history any way you measure it? The powerfully healed became powerful healers. See, there's this ancient story in the Jewish Talmud of a rabbi coming to the prophet Elijah and saying, when the Messiah comes, how are we going to recognize him? And Elijah says back to the rabbi, well, why don't you just ask him for yourself? And he says, well, where is he? And he says, he's sitting at the gates of the city. He says, well, how am I gonna pick him out from everyone else in the crowd? And he says, he is the one covered in wounds, sitting among the poor. That's who God is. He is the wounded healer, to borrow a phrase. The scandal of Jesus was not his power, it was his wounds. By his stripes we are healed, the wounded healer. And the scandal of the early church wasn't their success, it was their wounds, it was their underwhelming everything, their liberating commonness. The scandal of the Holy Spirit isn't power. If there's a God this powerful and this loving, power is just a part of the expected equation. The scandal is that kind of power filling wounded people. The thing that makes you an excellent candidate to be used by God is not your gifting, it's your wounds. And the thing that makes us an excellent candidate as a community to actually reshape history, to actually rewrite the story of our city through love is not our gifting or qualification, it is our wounds. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. Are you common and wounded? What a start, because by the Spirit, the powerfully healed become powerful healers. The most profound healing you have to offer the world will come through your wounds. By his wounds, we are healed, and by our wounds, we give healing away into the world. The Holy Spirit means that the chronically anxious can become a non-anxious presence in their workplace, flooding the Dead Sea with living water. It means that the addicted can find freedom and then become a safe harbor for others to find the same. It means that the depressed can be filled with incomprehensible joy and then actually give it away. It means the insecure can become courageous, inviting people into the very life that they were hiding before. And it means the quick-tempered can be flooded with self-control, healing even those on whom they have inflicted wrong. And it goes on and on in every variety imaginable. The places you need healing most today are healing for the world tomorrow, and that's not because you're a doctor, it's because you're wounded. I love these words from Soren Kierkegaard, with the help of the thorn in my foot, I jump higher than any man with two sound feet. 
The dead places in our city are filled with the very life of God because our wounds become wells of living water. Everything the river was in the vision, we become in the world. The dead places we spend our ordinary days become teeming with living with life because our deepest wounds, our greatest failures, our most painful suffering is healed by the Spirit. So I'll close here tonight. One sign of God's spirit in Ezekiel's vision are these, these trees lining the river whose leaves are for healing. And in the early days of the church, believers had the audacity to see that vision as an invitation to experience. And so this is what we read in James 5. It offers instructions for the wounded like us. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Healing, real supernatural, divine, miraculous, deep healing was so common in the early church, they had to structure it and create a system around it. What? That's available to us too. They were thirsty enough to participate in Jesus' invitation called the Holy Spirit, and now we tell their stories, but the invitation is participation. And so I'm gonna invite you to participate tonight to discover some stories of your own. So why don't we stand together and we'll respond. I'm gonna invite uh, Kaiser and Gemma, a couple of our elders to come forward now. And I just wanna ask you this one really simple question for you to consider. Are you in need of healing today? Healing of any kind? Physical healing, is anyone among you sick? God cares about your body. He cares about the chronic illness and the mild irritation and everything in between and healing is a sign of the kingdom come near. Emotional healing whether that's a broken and aching heart, an anxious racing mind, a numb sleepwalking imagination, a diagnosed mental illness, or a broken relationship with a parent. Spiritual healing, the spiritual disappointment that was inflicted on you that you've never entirely recovered from, the spiritual abuse you faced at the hands of a leader or a community that you trusted, your low expectations for God that have come through watching instead of participating, or the generational patterns you've inherited and can't escape. Are you in need of healing today? Let me pray for us. And if it, it feels like an honest posture of prayer to you, you can just place your hands open in front of you. So there's a way to pray with your body to symbolize, God, I'm open to you. Open to giving you whatever I carry and receiving whatever you have to give. In this moment of quiet between you and God, are you in need of healing today? Of any kind at all? physical, emotional, spiritual. Maybe it's not you, but a family member who comes to mind that is in need of some sort of healing. When we gathered to pray early this morning, God revealed that the Spirit was present to heal through um, this vision of things being lost that were then returned. It was like one person after another after another in our morning prayer meeting shared stories of, I, I lost this thing this week and it was given back to me and I think that's what God wants to do among us today. He wants to give us back those things we've lost somewhere along the way.
the mind owned by a pornography addiction. God wants to give you back innocence and freedom of your imagination. The body weakened by a kidney issue, God wants to give you back health and a fully functioning body. Mothers and those who wish to be, who have lost something significant in becoming a mom or, or that dream going unfulfilled up to this point. Those on anxiety or depression meds who don't wanna be, that for whatever reason that method isn't working for you, you lost a piece of yourself and this isn't doing the trick, it's not bringing it back. Are you in need of healing today of any kind at all? Have you lost something along the way and you want it back, anything at all? Holy Spirit, will you come and search us now? Will you show us those places in our lives where we need your healing and then would you fill us with the belief, not just to see it from a distance, but to wade into the water ankle deep, knee deep, until we're swimming in it. So we have the audacity to take the invitation seriously, to put James' words into practice and to experience it. And so a couple of the elders of our church are joining us tonight and they've got a bit of anointing oil. And if anyone here wants healing of any kind, as we respond, you're invited just to approach one of these elders and you don't have to share anything you don't want to. You don't have to tell them your story. You can simply come and open your hands, a symbol of you holding your wound helplessly before the wounded healer. Open your hands and stand there and just speak out a single word. Just one word that for you would summarize everything you're carrying, the open wounds that you live with, cancer, anxiety, sleeplessness, abuse, eczema, mom, disappointment, addiction, breakup, ankle, sister, hopeless, whatever single word summarizes it for you, and they're gonna say a prayer of healing over you, then I'm gonna mark you in oil with the sign of the cross on your forehead. You're invited tonight to come wounded, and then to go as wounded healers, pouring living water into the Dead Sea. Thank you.